0: everybody and uh, happy St. Patrick's Day. How many of you are Irish? not ashamed to admit it. All right. Okay. Good for you. All right. Um, The story of St. Patrick's is an amazing story. I won't share it with you, but uh, I I think maybe it's being missed, the true story of that. But we have a different story to tell. We're in our series, Rethink. And because of what we're doing this weekend, we're going to look at rethinking hope. So, I'd like you to take your Bibles out and turn to the Old Testament, to the book of Jeremiah and chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29. And then just leave your Bibles open, and we'll come back to a verse there that is very misunderstood, and hopefully, we'll get some clarity from it a little later on. Now, I want to tell you a story about my family. When my parents And my little brother and I moved back from Papua New Guinea where they were missionaries and settled in Michigan. We really had very little uh, in terms of finances or possessions. And as my dad and mom were trying to get established, we rented a very old house. I mean, really old. And we called it the creep house because every step you took in that place made a creaking kind of sound. And it was kind of creepy, especially at night. And uh, so we kind of lived in that house. And one day, I was coming back from elementary school. I was walking back. It was about February. There was still snow on the ground, like there's still snow on the ground in March here. And uh, I noticed as I came home that there was smoke billowing up from the roof of that old house. And then the closer I got, I saw lots of commotion taking place. And my aunt grabbed me and took me to her house, which was very close by. And I remember going out on the porch on their second story of their house and watching my mom, who was in her uh, white uh, nurse's uniform, running in and out of the house uh, trying to save what few possessions we had. And then when a the volunteer fire department showed up, they stopped her, thank God to not go in anymore because the flames were starting to uh, increase in there. It had a really old furnace that hadn't been working right, and it caught fire. And make a long story short, it burned our house down to the ground and everything that was in it except for the few things laying out in the snow. And I remember standing there to this very day as a child and looking out and having this feeling come right over me of being displaced a feeling like I have no home and feeling a sense of hopelessness as a kid and wondering to myself what's going to become of my family what's going to become of me and of course we had to then you know live with other people for a while and that's always hard they have different traditions and food and customs and the way they go about things and you know you have to kind of comply and don't take me wrong appreciated it at all but oh those were really really tough months i think the exiles from judea who were taken captive in 587 bc by nebuchadnezzar the greatest ruler on earth at that time and his kingdom of babylon i think those exiles who were taken from jerusalem resettled must have had a feeling of homelessness. Must have had a feeling of, of hopelessness as well. Here they were, transplanted to a very different place. And the reason it happened is because they had rebelled against God. Rather than listening to what God said and obeying God, no matter how many prophets God sent them, like Jeremiah, they just were stiff-necked. They still went after their false gods, They still practiced injustice and oppression. It was tragic. It was sad. And finally, God just had no choice but to punish them in order to wake them up and bring them to reality. Jerusalem had been ransacked. The the treasures of the temple had been taken and put in the treasure house of the gods of Babylon. So you can imagine these people like Daniel and Ezekiel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and the Old Testament Jews who had been taken now and transplanted here, it was very strange. It was, very, it was just very lonely. They it it felt very homeless, very hopeless. Strange language, strange food, strange music, strange religion, strange things are going about life. You know, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're a serious follower of Jesus Christ, you can't help but feel out of place on this earth and in this country. Because the more it moves away from God and the truth of God, the more you begin to feel like you kind of stand out for your beliefs and your convictions. And the more you feel like, you know, I don't, I don't belong here. This just, it doesn't feel like home to me anymore. That is, if you're a true, sincere follower of Christ, you can't help but feel or experience that. In fact, I would go even further. I was reading one scholar who said that, you know, even, even atheists, even agnostics feel like this is at home, that something's not right. And this scholar went on and he said, "Take, for instance, he said, "Take, for instance, liberals, and I'll let you define that however you want." He so said, liberals, they don't feel at home. And he's talking about America. They don't feel at home in this country because conservatives are present. The conservatives make it feel like it's not home because of what they value and what they believe and what they think. And conservatives don't feel at home, you can define that however you want, because of liberals and, and what they do and what they say and how they live and people from other you know, countries who have moved here, different ethnic groups, they don't feel at home either because it's a new place. This wasn't where they were born, it wasn't where they were Raised, and it just doesn't feel like home. And it, and it feels kind of hopeless. Where does all that come from? Where do all those feelings come from? Why do we feel so homeless in a sense and so hopeless? Well, if you want to answer the question, it's not that hard. Just go back to the first pages of Genesis. And we read in Genesis that God created the world and everything that's in it. And he created this beautiful garden. That's home. That's home. And he put our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden. And they felt really, really, really at home with God in the garden. So much so that the Bible says they were naked and not ashamed. Now, you got to really feel at home. And they did. And God said, all you have to do is listen to me and obey me. Listen to me and obey me. Listen to me and obey me. And they didn't. They disobeyed God. And God had to exile them out of the garden. He had to send them out of the garden. And ever since then, we've been trying to find home. And so when we establish our communities, our villages, our towns, and our cities, it's an attempt to say, this is home. But here's the problem. Wherever we show up, wherever we show up, we exclude others. And we make them feel homeless And hopeless. We exclude others. Color their skin. Their socioeconomic background. Shape of their body. How smart or not smart they are. How good looking they are, or aren't good looking. It happens at school, it happens at work, it happens in our communities. And nobody truly feels at home. We all have a sense of homelessness, like we don't belong. Say, ah, oh, wait a minute, I, I love Minnesota. It's almost like heaven to me. <laughs> I, this is home. I don't get what you mean. I really, I, this is my home. This is home to me. Have a survey question. How many of you have locks on your doors? Let me see your hands. You must not feel at home. You have locks on your doors. Who are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? As, as Christians in particular, if you're not a believer, I'm glad you're here, but I'm going to talk to the believers for a moment. How do we deal with that? Well, there's a guy named Evan Coons who's done some writing, and he says that there are three typical ways that Christians deal with the sense of living in a world that you don't feel you're a part of. He says, one is we fortify, we fortify. We hunker down, we, we kind of, we, we get in our Christian culture and we stay there, right? And we go to Christian stores, we eat Christian food, I don't know if there's such a thing. Uh, we hang out with Christian friends, we watch Christian movies, we listen to Christian music. Everything's Christian, Christian, Christian. We, we insulate ourselves with the attitude of, I just got to hunker down until Jesus comes back or I die and I go be with him. We turn our backs to the world and we navel-gaze at each other. He said, "The other option is domination instead of fortification. Domination. Take on the culture. Culture war. We're going to win this culture. So we get really political, or you know, it's about social media and tweeting out and saying things that are negative and nasty about other people. It's about getting people's faces. It's about going toe to toe and getting angry and grumpy about the world and the way it is. Right? I remember years ago." Marsh and I were, I forget, we were traveling somewhere in the Midwest we pulled into the shopping center and there was, this, um, there was this camper, pickup camper, right? And it had every Bible verse, I think, in the Bible plastered over it about going to hell and being damned and everything else with it. And I thought, man, when people are reading that and seeing that, no wonder they think, if you're a non-Christian, that Christians are really very judgmental and very angry people. Fight, fight, fight. The other, the other option isn't uh, fortification or domination. It's accommodation. It's accommodation. And accommodation is the attitude of, well, you know what? Can't beat him, might as well join him. Like a chameleon, I'll just become, you know, whatever it takes to get along and, you know, well, maybe the Bible's flexible and maybe it didn't mean what it really said and, and so maybe, you know, views that are changing on certain things are right and so I'm going to change my theology because, meh, whatevs, I just want to fit in. I just want to be accepted. I just... And none of those views, none of those views are right. They're all wrong. Fortification, domination, accommodation—they're all wrong. Ask yourself right now if you've bought into one of those. So, what's right then? What's right? That takes us to Jeremiah, because God has some things to say to His people who are in captivity that we need to hear, because they speak to us as well. And I want you to begin with me at verse 11, New Living Translation. It says. God says to them, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They're plans for good, not for disaster. They've been through disaster. To give you a future and a hope. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you and will bring you home again to your own land. God says, I have plans for you, a future and a hope. And what God said to them, he's saying to you and me, I want you to know individually, I want you to know as a community I want us to know as Wooddale Church, God has plans for us for a future and a hope. No matter what your circumstances are, he's got plans like that for you. Now, if I'd been living at that time in Babylon, I'd be wondering to myself, well, when am I going to realize this future and this hope that God has for me? And there was a prophet by the name of Hananiah and Hananiah said to the people in chapter 28 and verse 3, he said to them, that future, that hope, <laughs> it's coming in two years. In two years, God is going to break the back of Babylon. He's going to bring us all, or going to bring you all back home to Jerusalem and the royal family back, and we will finally back, be back home. Now, if I'm living in Babylon as a Jew and I hear that from Hananiah, I can deal with that. Two years, yeah, it's not easy, but two years, I'm home again. I'll just hunker in the bunker and get home. But there's a problem. Hananiah was a false prophet. Read chapter 28. Jeremiah, who's in Jerusalem, says to Hananiah, who also is there, he says, you're a liar. He said, I wish what you said was true, that we're, they were all going to be home in two years, but they're not. Chapter 25, Jeremiah prophesied as God revealed to him 70 seven zero years they would spend in captivity. And there in chapter 29, verse 10, he says it again. You're going to be 70 years in this foreign place. Now, I don't know about you, but if I hear that, I'm discouraged. Because I may be old enough that I won't make it back to Jerusalem to realize that hope someday. I may die here in this place, in this foreign place. And maybe you're looking at your life right now and your circumstances and you're thinking to yourself, you know, I've been praying and thinking I hope Jesus comes back in my lifetime, but I don't, I don't, I'm not sure he's going to come back in my lifetime. And I keep hoping that my financial, my relational, my whatever circumstances are going to change, but I'm not sure they're going to change before I die. So what future and what hope is there for me? Well, it's a wonderful future and hope waiting for all of us. If you believe in Jesus and what he did for you on the cross, I know for a fact that someday I will be home. I know there's a hope waiting for me beyond the grave. I'm convinced that. I know God has a plan for me in the future and a hope for me in the future, but it still begs the question, well, what about now? And the good news is God has something for us now. God gives us in this passage a clear strategy for living in the now when our hope is waiting for us in the future. And that's what he's about to say to his people. So look at verse 4 with me in chapter 29. God says to Jeremiah, This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives. He has exiled the Babylon from Jerusalem. He says, Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children, then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply, do not dwindle away, he says. (laughs) You don't expect to hear that. God is saying, I want you to move into Babylon, this place where you feel like strangers, this place is very foreign, your captors, your enemies, I want you to move in, and I want you to thrive. It almost sounds like Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. When God says to the first couple, what does he say to them? He says, I put you here and I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. in essence, what God is saying to us is, look, you live in a sinful world, you live in a sinful culture. Yes, it's not easy, it's hard. You have enemies, you have people who don't agree with you, but I want you, I want you to move in. And I want you to thrive. And then look what he says in verse 7. He says, And work for the shalom and prosperity of the city where I sent you. <laughs> that had to be hard for them to take. These are our enemies. God's saying, Don't fortify, don't try to dominate, and don't accommodate. I want you to bring my shalom the shalom that comes from being my chosen people. Remember what God said to Abraham, to you I will bless all the nations of the world. I want you to be a blessing to wicked old King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. I want you to move in and be good citizens. I want you to add the economy. I want you to help the oppressed, the poor, and the needy, and whoever else is around you. I want you to share with them. And he says, I want you to pray. I want you to pray to the Lord for Babylon. For its welfare will determine your welfare. If things go good for it, things will go good for you. And then God goes on, and we've already read the verses 11 through 14. And he says, and I still have a future and hope for you. But right now, I want you to bless the Babylonians. And that's what God's saying to you and me. He's saying that to you at work in your family, in your neighborhood, at your school. Wherever we are, however uncomfortable it is, however challenging it is, God says, "But I want I want you to be there and I want you to bless the people I've placed you in and the people I've placed around you." Now, I want to draw out from this some principles that we can apply in our lives personally and we can apply as a church. And here's the first one. It comes in verse 13. And that is, whatever your circumstances are. Now take this personally. Take it also as a church. Whatever our circumstances are, God makes it clear, seek me first. Look at verse 13. When you seek me with your whole heart, then I'll be found. The problem the Jews had in Jerusalem is they weren't seeking God wholeheartedly. They were also seeking idols and worshiping idols and practicing injustice. God says, I am disciplining you. I'm putting you in a place where you don't have, your cr- you don't have anything to you know, lean on as a crutch, where you only have me. And when you seek me wholeheartedly, you'll find me. Now, you've got to pay attention to that verse. I have to. It's convicting to me. Because oftentimes, we seek God for something, Right? And the Bible is clear. Yes, go to the Lord for your needs, your concerns. That's that's true. But there has to be times when we seek God just for himself. Because if I don't seek God for just himself, I become dependent on the things I want God to give me. That's called idolatry. But if I'll just be satisfied with God, what happens, God says, when you seek me wholeheartedly, you'll find me, I'll reveal myself to you. And you know when God does that, when you really engage God that way, what happens is, the things that you think you need, all of a sudden you just go, I don't really need that. Because God is enough. But in a crazy busy world, with places to go and people to see and things to do, oftentimes our time with God is spent more as, I got to do this so I don't feel guilty. And you know, it's like, God's like the lucky rabbit's foot, right? If if I just if I just touch God enough times, maybe He'll do this for me. And 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 so we have a lot of people, a lot of Christians, who who just really in a way don't know God. Number two, embrace your circumstances. That's what he's saying in these verses. Verse 5 through 6 embrace your circumstances. He's telling the the Jews, embrace these difficult circumstances, these challenges that you're facing, your enemies, the strange land, strange food, everything else. Embrace it. Don't, Don't run from it. Don't fortify against it. Don't try to dominate it. Don't accommodate to it, but embrace it for me. I don't know what your circumstances are today. We all have them. Maybe it's what happened to you in the past. Maybe it's what's happening to you right now. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe, I don't know what it is, all right? But God has put you there for a redemptive reason. And rather than fighting it, say, God, how do you want to bring shalom to the situation through me being in this current situation I am not talking about embracing abuse I'm not talking about embracing violence against you so please don't misunderstand me there's a whole lot of other things though that just come with living in a sinful world that we wish we could get rid of that we wish could stop that we wish we could and God says but I need you to shine like a light there because if I take you out there's no light And if there's no light, there's no salvation. So I need you to live redemptively there. In other words, God is saying, I want you to integrate and I want you to live for the shalom, for the welfare of those people I have placed around you, even though you feel like a stranger and it's hard. You know, the greatest example of that in this story, in this setting, is Daniel. I don't know if you read the book of Daniel, but you might want to at least read the first three or four chapters. I mean, Daniel is taken from Jerusalem. He's 15 years old. He's made into a eunuch. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his friends join him and many others. They are they are they're smart kids and they're raised in, in the schools of Babylon. They learn math, they learn science, they learn the language, they had their names changed, they look and dress like Babylonians. They become influential in the culture. They're given administrative responsibilities or vast territories. Daniel rises up to be one of the key advisors in Nebuchadnezzar's ear. And it even seems like, as you read it carefully, that Nebuchadnezzar may have actually come to believe in the God of Daniel. And later on, Daniel is speaking to the ears of other rulers. Because he didn't fortify, because he didn't accommodate, because he didn't try to dominate. But look at this last principle, earn the right to say no. Because there were times when Daniel had to look at the chief, had to look at the leader, had to look at the ruler and say, I won't do that. It goes against my beliefs. I won't eat that kind of food. I won't, bow or that Shadrach, Meshach, and go, We won't bow down to that idol, that cultural idol. Here's what we believe, O king, and we're going to live out what we believe. We're going to live our convictions, even if we have to die for it. We're going to do it. They didn't get nasty. They didn't protest. They didn't tweet out something negative about Nebuchadnezzar. They They just said, we're doing our best to help you out. We're trying to be good citizens. We're trying to contribute to the economy. We're trying to help you lead this nation, but we're not going to violate the truth. And if you have to die, we'll have to die. You know, you earn the right to say no when, when the people you're living around see that you actually love them and care about them. And that you're there to minister to them and help them. They're far more willing to listen to you when you say, no, I can't do that. I don't believe that. I won't go along with that. I won't buy into that. But you know, the greatest example of all is Jesus. The greatest example of all in the scriptures is Jesus. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus lived, so to speak, in a garden of glory. With the Father, with the Spirit, the Son, one divine essence, three distinct personalities. It's a mystery that nobody can explain. And yet Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that, that Jesus left glory. In a sense, he became exiled. And he came to this earth. And he embraced us. And he integrated and lived among us. I mean to the point that he put on skin like us. He became a Jew. And he learned their language. And he ate their food and played or listened to their music. And participated in their traditions and their customs. And then he went around and he brought shalom. He brought peace. Everywhere he went, he brought peace to people who would receive it. He touched the untouchables. He healed those who were sick. He forgave those who confessed their sins. He loved the lonely. He encouraged the downhearted. He fed the hungry. Everywhere he went, he benefited everyone he contacted with hope and with peace and with grace and with love and with forgiveness and with mercy. He even laid his life down, even for his enemies. He laid his life down. He determined to bring shalom into the world that was around him. And he crucified him. And he crucified him. And when he rose from the dead, what did he do? When he rose from the dead, he gathered his followers around him and he said, he said, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. Now he wasn't just speaking to them, he's speaking to every one of us. Read Matthew 28, 19, 20, acts chapter one, verse eight. The prayer of Jesus, John chapter seventeen, we're all included in this. He said, I've got a plan for a future and a hope for you, and I'm going, I'm going ahead to prepare it. And he said, and then someday I'm going to come back again and I'm going to receive you to myself and there will be together. So there's a great future and there's a great hope awaiting every follower of Christ. Amen? Amen? Don't forget that. Don't forget that. But in the meantime, a few of you are happy about it, but it's okay. All right? Some of you are still convinced Minnesota's heaven, but anyway. He says, but I'm go- and I'm going to come back. But in the meantime, he says, I've got a plan for you now. I want you to go here, near, and far and bring shalom and bring hope to others. And that's what Vision 22 Centers of Hope is all about. Now, if you're a guest with us, we've been talking about our, our vision and our campaign to extend hope beyond where we are. And so you get to listen in on this, all right? But I'm, I'm really talking right now to those folks who are you know, committed to the mission and vision of Wooddale Church to honor God by making more disciples for Jesus Christ by bringing hope of the gospel to over 700,000 people in the next seven years, which ends in 2022. That's why we're trying to raise a million and a half dollars, a million and a half dollars to spread the hope of the gospel to five countries in Asia where 99% of the people don't know Jesus. We were hoping to plant five to 6,000 churches by 2022, but in the first phase of Vision 1, you've been so gracious, we've actually, we're actually about at 5,000 now. Now we're going to try to plant over 12,000 churches multiplying the effort to reach people for Christ. And that's why we're talking about turning our, our campuses to be even more outward focused. So here at Eden Prairie, how can we become more a center of hope to the community around us? And we have the Treehouse Ministry that's now using our campus. Teen Challenge is going to start using our campus. We just, we just, want, to, we just want to spread hope to youth and children and adults. And he died at campus. We want to do the same thing there. And that's why we're purchasing the multi, uh, the music box theater down in Lauren Park. God has given such an opportunity down there. It's such a, it's such a uh, beautiful neighborhood with, with so, so much diversity down there. And how can we be Christ there? How can we be in that community and bring hope and show God's love and show God's grace? And that's why we're establishing a coffee house. Talk about getting, you know, a theater now, a coffee house. That's seven corners next to the school a business, Carlson School of Business, the, the law school, and the, and the policy school there. Because we want to minister to those graduate students, foreign students that have come there, students from our own country have come there, who are going to be key influencers in the future. We want to influence them through ministry. So we're try, trying something brand new, a coffee house, during the week, and a place to worship on the weekend just going down there and living with them and loving on them and caring for them and where is god going to take us even beyond that where's god going to take us now i don't know about you but when i step out and do something risky that i think is risky at least for god i always like a couple of signs along the way anybody else like that it's nice when he gives them right and and he's been giving some and i'm going to share one with you and an amazing one next weekend as well but you know when we first start talking about seven corners and what we wanted to do down there A couple months ago a young lady came up to me, she and her husband, and she shared with me how she was at the Carlson School of Business when she was in this mentoring program and got connected to a mentor at Wooddale Church. And I want you to listen carefully to the rest of her story. Watch this.
1: My name is Molly Sakura and I've been coming to Wooddale for five years with my family. My first experience with Wooddale Church was when I was matched with a mentor during my time at Carlson School of Management. So my mentor's name was Bruce and the first time I met him I was very excited. In his current career when I was with him, he was the executive pastor at Wooddale. It was obvious he had a lot of experience in the field of accounting. So I was really excited to pick his brain for career advice. Um, What I didn't know was that God had bigger plans for this mentorship. We spent time talking about Wooddale, um, how they did their accounting and finance. I got to meet the accounting team. But beyond that, Bruce took the extra step of introducing me to his wife and really making me feel like I was important to him personally. Later on in the year, he invited me to a Christmas service with his wife Donna. And we just had a lot of conversations beyond just accounting but about life. My senior year of college, um, my mom passed away. One of the things I clung to during that time was my relationship that I developed with Bruce and Donna. And then Eventually, he asked John and I if we'd like to attend a service with him. So we picked the traditional service and Bruce was there waiting for us with a smiling face (laughs) and he sat with us through the service. That was one of the first times I'd been in church. At the most tragic time in my life, I had the hope of the gospel of Christ in just a very small chunk. God used Bruce and Donna to prepare my heart to receive Christ. And it was after that time that we kind of decided to start looking for churches. Because of the hope that I had from my relationship with Bruce and Donna, um, and the way God used them in my life, now I'm seeing so much more in even just my family. It's amazing the impact one person could have on really a whole generation. How many people could be impacted in the way I was?